And today, the rest of us, we're going to be going through week number four in the pursuit. So the pursuit is our 12-week discipleship track where we teach the essentials of Christianity. Many of you have gone through the pursuit. Some of you maybe uh, have not yet gone through it. So we're doing it this summer together as a church. And we're updating a couple of these topics. And, uh, and, and the goal here isn't just to listen, isn't just to hear these messages on Sunday morning, but the goal really is to empower you guys with your family, with your small group, and in mentoring relationships to, to really use this tool to, A, come to faith if you've never put your faith in Jesus, but, but B, is to help someone else come to faith as well. I mentioned last week, I was here last week, and I mentioned last week that I'm bringing my 19-year-old son through the pursuit again with a couple of his buddies. Uh, we've already gone through it before, but we're doing it again. And part of the reason is because you can never get enough of this. The basics are so important. And today's message is finally some of the bad news. You know, the first few weeks here in, the, in this series, we've been talking about the good news. And there's a lot of good news. In fact, next week and the week after, we're going to pick up on the good news some more. So there's lots more good news than bad news in the Bible. But we need the bad news to, un- to really understand the good news. And so today we're going to talk about what the Bible says about sin. Now, sin is one of those things that I don't even know if our culture even believes in it anymore. I used to write sermons by narrating it into my phone. And whenever I would say the word sin, Google didn't know the word. For real, like Google, I had to like stop narrating and type it in by hand because Google didn't have the word sin in their lexicon, which shouldn't be surprising to me. I think they did that on purpose, (laughs) you know? Like, we're not going to put that word in there, right? That's crazy to me, our culture and the way we view sin. In fact, we, we we don't live too far from Sin City, right? When you think about Sin City, maybe you've gone down there before and you've had a good time. Maybe you're like, I I love going down. I love having a little vacay down there. Head down to Sin City, you know? We've turned sin into a good thing in our culture. In fact, if any of you watch The Simpsons, I don't know this episode, but Pastor Eric told me about this. There's an episode that depicts sin, or sorry, it depicts hell, and in hell, everyone's just shooting pool and having a good old time with, with Satan, and I, I want to let you know, that's not the biblical understanding of hell and sin. We're going to take a look at what the Bible says about it, because, because the Bible, I think, should set the pace for us instead of our culture. And so let's start with the definition. Sin is going your own way. You've probably heard this many times. We, this is kind of the, our stock definition for sin. I love it. It, you know, we, we, we used this definition years ago, and we haven't gone away from it, because I think it's a real simple way to understand it. Sin is going your own way. It's trusting and acting on your own opinions and feelings instead of on God's truth. So just think about that. Before we give some examples of this, I want you to think about this in your own life. Let's just admit we all do. We all sin, every single one of us. If there are 100 people in this room, there are 100 sinners in this room, Okay. We're all sinners, we're all broken, we're all in need of a savior, every single one of us. That's why the bad news is important. It gives us context for the good news that we're gonna talk about next week and the week after. But just admit it that we all go our own way. Admit that in your, in your own heart, and your, your own instincts are wired in this way that, 
that you, you want to act on your own opinions and feelings. You trust your own opinions and feelings more than you trust someone else, more than you trust another person's perspective, whether it's your spouse or your parents or your friends or God. There's every one of us, if we just would admit it, every one of us is wired to trust our own instincts rather than what God or somebody else has to say about it. I, I even feel it just in myself. I, you know, I, when, Tra- when Tracy and I, when my wife and I, we're, we're having a uh, conversation. We don't have arguments. We have conversations. <laughs> when we're having a conversation, my, I, my instinct is not to say, oh, I see what you're saying. My instinct is not to put myself in her shoes and see it from her point of view. My instinct is to see it from my point of view, to be entrenched in my own way, my own thoughts. My instinct is to defend myself, not to defend her. My instinct is to, is to promote and act on my own opinions and feelings in that conversation, rather than on what she has to say about it, or certainly not on what God might have to say about it. So I have to go against my instincts a lot of times when it comes to sin, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. In fact, the very first story of sin perfectly illustrates this definition. It's actually where we get the definition from. It's in the third chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. It says the serpent, who is representative of Satan in this story, was the shrewdest of the wild animals the Lord God had made, And one day, the serpent asked Eve, did God really say that you must not eat fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Remember, if you were here last week, remember we said that one of the things that we have, and we celebrate that this weekend, is liberty. We have liberty, and God's the one who gives us liberty. God's the one who gives us freedom. He's endowed us with liberty. The founding fathers got that idea from the Bible. And actually, it's the first example of that is this example right here. God puts Adam and Eve in a beautiful garden, and they give them, he gives them all this, all this abundance of fruit, this incredible abundance of fruit. So just to picture that. But then they just say there's this one tree in the middle of the garden that you can't eat from, but all the rest of it you can eat from. So that's the backstory for this. You can read that in Genesis 2. But look at what Satan does. Satan comes and Satan twists God's truth. By the way, this is how Satan still works today. He twists something that God has said and he tries to put a spin on it so that he's creating his own narrative to confuse us. And so here's what he says. Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Now just think about that statement. Is that what God said? No, that's not at all what God said. But you see how Satan is twisting it to make it sound restrictive instead of to sound like God is good and and he wants to give in abundance. He's twisting the words of God, and Satan still does that today. Now, it's interesting because the woman picks up on this, and here's what she says. She says, of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. So she doesn't fall for it right away, okay? But she, she says, it's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat from because God said you must not eat, eat it or even touch it, and if you do, you will die. Okay, so, so she's, she's 
rightly remembering what God said about the story, she doesn't fall for his first lie, but he's not done. Young people, if you're in here, Satan is not going to just try once to trick you. He's going to try over and over and over again. Old people, that's true for you as well. Verse 4, here's what it says. The serpent says, you won't die. Do you see what he's doing now? He's contradicting God again. His, his big lie didn't work, so now he's going to keep trying to spin it and twist it, and now he says, oh, you're not going to die. So see what he's doing right here. He's saying, God said this one thing, but Satan is trying to plant a different idea in your mind, and he's trying to get you to disregard what God has said in no uncertain terms. God made it clear. He said it to him, and Satan is now saying, come on. He's trying to cast doubt on what God has had to say. And here's what he says. Here's how he explains it to her. Here's his rationale. He says, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Now, we don't have time to get into this, but maybe in your small groups or with your families, you can talk more about this and, and kind of analyze, psychoanalyze Satan here a little bit. And I encourage you to do that. But suffice it to say that what it says next here in the Bible is that the woman was convinced. There it, there it was. She didn't fall for the big lie. He spun it just a little bit more. He backed up a little bit, but he, still, he was still twisting the truth. He was still twisting God's opinion, which, by the way, God's opinion is the truth. And everyone else's opinion has a little bit of truth in it. But God's opinion is, by definition, the truth. And so... The woman was convinced. She decided to believe the creature instead of the creator. And it's interesting what it says next. She was already convinced, but then look at what happens next. It says, she saw that the tree was beautiful. So you can see kind of what's happening in her. Like, she was convinced, and now, now she's going to look at the tree again from a different perspective, and you know how easy that's, that is for us to do is if we get away from God and his word and we start believing what our culture says, we start believing what the media says or your influencers say, we start, what happens is when we buy a different narrative than God's narrative, which is, by the way, why it's so important for all of us, including young people, to get in the word. Because if you're not letting your mind and your perspective be shaped by the word of God, then what's going to happen is just what happened with her. When you're convinced by a different worldview that's not God's worldview and his truth, what happens is now when you look at the picture again, you're going to see other things in the picture. Look at what she sees now. Now that she's been convinced, now it's going to be like a self-fulfilling prophecy when she's looking at the tree. She saw now that it was beautiful. She saw that its fruit looked delicious. Do you see how this is all just perception? This is all just opinion, feeling? This is, these aren't statements about what's true about it. Now she's, starting to, now she's starting to give it value and give it worth, and now she's starting to see it the way that Satan wanted her to see it. And then it says, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. Who, whose idea was that, that it would give her wisdom? That was Satan's idea, not God's idea. So now, she, see, she's bought into Satan's lie, and so now 
She's going to begin to interact in the world according to the lie, Satan's narrative instead of God's truth. And this, again, is what happens to all of us today. And so it says she took some of it, she ate the fruit, and then she gave some of it to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. Enter husband and wife joke here, and let's move on. You've all heard those jokes before, right? I mean, it's so interesting that God, if you go back and read it, God actually gave the command to Adam. Doesn't even say Eve was there when he gave the command, but clearly Eve knew the command because she repeated it. So Adam passed the command along on to Eve. Satan deceived Eve. Eve convinced Adam. They both sinned, and, and sin entered the world, and we've been reeling from it ever since. And again, it's the same old story just over and over and over again. We have a perspective, and God has a perspective, and we just can't help ourselves. We have to believe our perspective and act on our perspective. And so it's been repeated in your life. It's been repeated in your parents' lives, in your grandparents' lives, all the way on down. Every single one of us then is infected with this this sin problem. And here's what happens. Sin brings brokenness in every way. And it keeps us from experiencing the fullness of life that God wants for us. Remember in week one of the series, if you were here, we talked about the fact that, that Jesus wants to bring us the fullness of life. He wants us to enjoy life. He wants us to have abundance. The, the, the signers of the Declaration of Independence said it like this, he, that God, the Creator has endowed us with the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And here's how Jesus said that in John 10.10. 10. The thief, now let's think about the serpent now. The, the serpent comes to steal and kill and destroy. That's exactly what he was trying to do, and it worked. But Jesus says, I have come that people might have life and have it to the full. So he wants us to have that full, abundant life with all the rest of the trees in the garden. But, but sin now, now that sin has entered the world, because we have liberty, because we have freedom, sin now causes us to miss out on the abundant life that God wants us to have. I mean, there it is right there. There's the bad news is sin brings brokenness to us when God wanted to bring fullness to us. He wanted to bring full life. Sin breaks it up. Sin destroys us, every part of it. Now, there are some lists of, of there are some sin lists in the Bible, uh, in the New Testament in particular, and I want to I share one of them. It's from Galatians 5. We don't have time to jump into it in great detail, but I, I just think this is really interesting, what Paul says about what happens when sin enters into the world and what happens in all of our lives. Paul said this in Galatians 5, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, and again, we all have it, the results are very clear. I love what Paul says. It's obvious what happens when you do what Adam and Eve did. Here's what happens. Here's the results. Think about his list. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures. Okay, so I put that in one category. I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands. But just in your own head, think about if you've ever struggled with any of that. And then he says this, idolatry and sorcery. And then it's really interesting, the next part of the list is, it's like all of a sudden I feel like he's talking about a whole different like level or category of sin. He says hostility, quarreling, jealousy, 
outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, and envy. It's so interesting that those are, I would call those like everyday normal sins. Like we see those all the time. And it, this makes his list. And then, he, and then he gets back to like a different category again, like the Sin City category. He just ends, ends it with drunkenness and wild parties, okay? And then just in case you think that he's making a comprehensive list here, he just says, and other sins like these. So he's just giving us an example of the kinds of destruction and brokenness that sin brings into your world. Now, I, I come from a long line of drunks in, my, in my, my history. My dad literally grew up in a tavern on the south side of Chicago. His dad owned the tavern, and they lived up above the tavern in an apartment. So when we would go to visit grandma and grandpa when I was young, and I grew up in a church that said you shouldn't ever drink. Don't even touch it. It's wrong. Don't even touch a beer. That's the kind of church I grew up in. So imagine me, Mr. Little Goody Two-Shoes, and my siblings, and we would go to a bar on Christmas every week or every, every year. And we'd have, to, we'd have to walk through the bar and pass all of the drunks. I mean, I don't mean to call names here, but they were drunks. Uh, we would walk past all of the drunks, and they were the nicest people I'd ever met. They were so nice and kind. That was my first interaction with alcohol, is they were just the night, they would be like, hey, if you could climb that pole and touch the ceiling, I'll give you a buck. And so we all did this. We were like, I want to grow up and be a drunk someday. <laughs> These are fantastic people. And I can only, now that I'm a parent, I can only imagine what my mom felt about all of that, you know, bringing her kids to a bar every Christmas. That's what my dad grew up with. Most of his siblings are alcoholics. My older brother struggled with alcoholism. So we, like, we have this in our family. I'm sure most of you have stuff like that in your family, but I just want to just remind you, it's not just them. It's all of us. Because there's something for everyone in that list, isn't there? Pastor Eric at our Riverdale campus, he, he likes to, when he talks through this topic with people, when he's discipling people, he likes to go over this list and, and he would say, hey, could you, can you tell me which one's on, on that list? Raise your hand if you committed that sin on that list. And, and he does that with his groups. And then, he, and then he saves the best part for the end. He says, I've committed all of them, every one of them. He's a really bad guy. So, no, that's all of us. Every one of us is broken. Every one of us is tainted by sin. Paul said it this way in Romans 1. He says, they are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. Next time you turn on the news that you don't agree with. We do this all the time in our house. We always like to jump between the channels to see the, all the spin that everybody puts on everything. You know, just read this verse next time you, you turn on the news and you just want to throw your remote at the TV. They're backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. And then I love the next part. He's, he says, they invent new ways of sinning. John Calvin said that our hearts are idol-making machines. Like we, we invent new ways. We're so good at this, we invent new ways of sinning. I, that, isn't that so true today? There are just newer and newer ways of sinning. It's crazy to me. 
But before you point too many fingers, I love how he finishes this one. And then he says, and they disobey their parents. Isn't that great? Backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, boastful, inventing new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. Like he backs all the way up to like the most basic thing that we, every one of us disobeyed our parents, right? Let's, let's all admit it. Every one of us disobeyed our parents. And that's kind of the point a little bit, isn't it? Isn't that what Adam and Eve did? If you just break it down, weren't they just disobeying their parents? Isn't that really what sin is? Sin is just saying, I hear what you say, authority figure, but I want to go my way. And see, as parents, our job is to try to represent God and his authority to our kids so that they would submit themselves to God someday when we're not anymore the mediator. But the problem with that for every one of us is every one of us is born into sin. Every single one of us has this, this, this urge to go our own way, every one of us. And that's what the Bible says about sin. The Bible says we're all born into sin. And so, therefore, we must all be born again. Think about that, how, how Jesus talked about it with Nicodemus, Nicodemus in John 3, 3. Jesus is talking to this Pharisee who comes to him at night because he's really interested in Jesus' teachings, but he doesn't want to out himself with the other Pharisees, you know. So they have this interaction in John 3. Go read it if you've never read it. It's really interesting. But one of the things that Jesus says to Nicodemus is, I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. I just want you to think about this for a second. What is Jesus saying? He's essentially saying there was something wrong about how you were born. There's something fundamentally wrong about you, and it started at birth. It didn't start when you were a teenager. It started at birth. Now, the biblical or the theological uh, phrase for this is original sin. The Bible says that we're all born with original sin. Every single one of us is born wrong. Every one of us is born wrong. Every one of us is born with instincts and desires that we should question, not instincts and desires that we should celebrate. Every one of us is born wrong, and every one of us must be born again. The solution is that we would be born again. Paul says it like this in Romans chapter three. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is fully wise. No one is seeking God. All of us have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. An Old Testament prophet, Jeremiah, he said it like this. All of your righteous deeds... All of your righteous deeds, all the good things you do, are like dirty rags. Now here's how, here's how I like to explain original sin. One of our pastors years ago said it like this. I always thought it was the best example. Is Think about, think about a glass of lemonade. You've got a, just a tall glass of lemonade. You've been out there mowing the lawn all day. Yesterday it was so hot outside. And you come inside and mom has made you a tall, wonderful ice cold glass of lemonade and she hands it to you and she says, oh, you're gonna enjoy this. Thanks for mowing the lawn and you're about to drink it and she says, wait, just one thing. 
Just a little bit of poop was dropped into that. Just a little teeny bit. Just a little bit. Now, pardon my, but you'll remember this if I say it like that. Just a teeny bit. Are you going to drink that lemonade? As thirsty as you are? No way. Because you don't have to have a whole glass full of poop. You just need a glass full of lemonade with a little bit of poop in there, and you're not going to want to touch it. And see, that's the thing. We're not as bad as we could be. We're not as bad. The, the doctrine of original sin doesn't teach that we're all as bad as we possibly could be. We're not all as bad as we possibly could be. We, still ha- we, we all still have the imago Dei. We all still have the image of God. We all still have, there's, we're, we're all a mixed bag. We have a little bit of good and a little bit of bad. But here's the thing. The bad infects all of us. The bad works, the bad in us works through every single part of us. And it makes every part of us broken. So that means it makes, our, it makes our way of thinking broken. The, the sin, our sin nature makes the way we think just a little bit off. It infects the way we think. Our sin nature infects the way we feel. It infects our emotions. Our sin nature infects our relationships. Our sin nature affects our decision making. Our sin nature infects our finances. Our sin nature infects everything that makes you, you. Every part of what makes you, you. However you want to break that down. Emotionally, relationally, spiritually, physically. Our sin nature is the reason that there's sickness in the world. It's because of sin. When when sin entered the world in Genesis 3, the world broke. The world was broken. The world was not right. And the Bible says that we're not right. We're infected to the core. Romans 3.23 says this, for everyone has sinned, every one of us, no exceptions, and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. That's the bad news. And therefore, we all must be born again. We're all born wrong, so we all must be born again. And we're going to talk a little bit about how to do that in the next couple weeks. So that's our sin sermon. And I just want to encourage you today, if you've, if you've heard this, maybe you've heard this kind of message a million times. Maybe you're here today and you're not sure if you'd even call yourself a Christian. I don't want you to end on the bad news. I want you, I'm just going to give you a little bit of a teaser for the good news. The good news is Jesus is the one who allows us to be born again. The good news, and we're going to talk about who Jesus is next week. We're going to talk about what the Bible teaches about Jesus. We're going to evaluate one of the early sermons about Jesus that puts it all together for us. It's really, really, next week's message is really good because it's important for us to understand who Jesus is because Jesus is the only solution to our sin problem. The solution to the sin problem is a person. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's a person. And that's why we celebrate Jesus every week. That's why we sing about Jesus. That's why we preach about Jesus every single week. And so again, I want to, just spoiler alert, I want to tell you, Jesus is the solution. The Bible says that Jesus died and rose again, and that when we place our faith in him, then we would be saved. And many of us in this room have done this, and that's why every, every month we celebrate something called communion, and we want to do that today. We wanna, I thought this would be a great message for us to celebrate communion together, because I want us to end on a good note, not on a bad note. Sin is the problem, but Jesus is the solution. So we're going to do that in a moment, but I want to pray first and invite the worship team to come up. Lord, 
I want to say thank you, Jesus, that, that you told us the truth in your word. And the truth is that we're all, we're all sinners. We're all born in sin. We all want to go our own way. And God, I pray that you would help us to understand that, Lord, that maybe there are some people here today that need to, need to hear that message. They need to be convicted. They need to recognize what's wrong before they turn to you for the answer. And we thank you that you have given us the answer. Thank you, Jesus, that you went to the cross. You died on the cross for our sins. And that you rose again to prove your power over sin and death in the grave. And so today we celebrate that as we take communion. In Jesus' name, amen.